That's what yeah. we, we need to call you the outlasting queen. <laughs> I think that needs to be your, your title. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't beat them, outlast them. Exactly. exactly. That's a good motto, I think. Hi, uh, both, and um, uh, thanks again for having me. Um, I'm uh, Maria Manolescu. Uh, I'm lucky enough to um, have been uh, very strongly shaped uh, by my UAP experience. Um, I started in 2004 when I was 15 and I ended up staying, sticking around for 15 more years. <laughs> um, and um, I, well, I, I got to try different roles and um, um, different type of uh, events. Um, I think uh, my um, my favorite one or perhaps more f most formative experience was um, uh, doing trainings. Um, um, so that's also what motivated me to uh, work on having more trainings around UAP and um, getting more people to attend trainings. 15 years. That's a, <laughs> that's a long time. Like with Joe, we were literally talking about this the other day that uh, like towards the end of my kind of time in EYP, I thought I was going to continue, continue. And people kept saying, oh, this is your last session. Oh, you're quitting now. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, I know I'm kind of old. So like after 15 years, did you have those kind of conversations with people? Were they asking those questions? Um, I think uh, I still remember I presided in a national session at one point and I hadn't said anything. I don't even think I was thinking about uh, finishing uh, EYP. Um, and at the end, there was a video with people saying goodbye to me and how much UMP is going to miss me. And I thought, well, I think that's a very clear message. <laughs> um, and I had my goodbyes. I really thought I was stopping after I presided uh, Trondheim uh, IS. Um, but then I was uh, uh, pulled back in um, by the idea of running for governing body. Um, so I did two more years of that. Cool. So what well, would you say that in, in, in your, okay, let me take that again. Uh, what would you say in when you were growing up as a new peer during these 15 years, what was the, was the main driving force to you before you got into this whole trainings and GP thing? Before getting into the more serious um, parts or understanding, you know, the, what I was going through and the impact it had on me. Um, first, it was a sister rivalry because my older sister had done UIP. So I thought, well, if she did it, I should also be doing it. Um, and afterwards, I wish I'd have a more original answer, but it, it was just the people, uh, you know, I met friends. I thought it was really cool, these parties that we had. My first event was an international session, so it was incredible to just be there. Um, and I wanted to try it out again. Um, and I think it was also in a way... Um, um, at the same time, uh, UAP Romania was starting um, as a national committee. So it was easy to be, I don't want to say dragged on because I wanted to be a part of it, but um, it was easy to stay involved without having a very clear objective in mind. And actually, the um, after I was, de uh, so I was a delegate once or twice, I think. And afterwards, we had our first event uh, 
with UAP Romania. And I was vice president because I was among the more experienced ones. And I still remember arriving there and we had no conversation with the board beforehand. Um, I arrived, we were supposed to have a meeting with the other chairs. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like I didn't even know how to chair. <laughs> I just thought I'll just redo what my chair did with me. So the, um, if you look back uh, and compare with what's happening now and how serious all, first of all, how much preparation goes before a session and how much a board thinks about what do we want participants to get? This should be a learning experience for them, tailoring trainings to their needs. It's a completely different approach than what was before 2010. So I remember in my, my first experience within the chairs team, I think it was 2012. And at that time, I remember we had this chairs training and for me, it was just mind blowing because I had been doing all these team building activities, having all this fun. And I thought it was just fun. I thought you do fun with people. They connect, we're cool. Now let's do some work. And that's what I really thought it was. And just people have these lists of really fun activities to do. But then I went into chairs training and they're like Fyro this and group dynamics that. Um, when in your first couple of years within chairs teams, was that a thing or to what extent was that there? I remember the first time I chaired abroad and we had, it wasn't a training, it was chairs meetings. And I thought, now I know all of the secrets. <laughs> I understand why everyone is doing these things that I had no idea why they were. And then I remember, so I took part in uh, the first training for UAP trainers in 2010. And I remember how I felt and it was overwhelmed and in awe. It just felt like there was so much I could learn. And especially then I was already, uh, you know, I was presiding quite a bit. Um, I think by that time I had been on the boards of, of two NCs. So I felt I was towards the end of what I could get from UAP. And it was like a new world opened up uh, where I realized not only how much more I could learn and I could get, but that there was also a lot I could share um, with others. And within that kind of that, that transition time, as you said there about you, you now will then go to sessions in which there are these meetings in which people are discussing these kind of ideas and explaining the secrets behind stuff. Um, when would you say it kind of happened in UIP that we started to formalize this of saying every session you go to will have some kind of training. You will understand and learn how to do the role that you're about to do. It for sure started in 2010. Um, and I think um, the way they selected participants, and I think it's what we did in, in the next T4ATs as well, is we looked at uh, people who would have the highest chances of multiplying the effect, so who are likely to be presiding afterwards. Um, and I think, for example, in 2010, uh, Krista Simberg uh, was a participant in T4ET right before she presided Frankfurt IS. Um, and um, the moment you do something in, in an IS training, most of the chairs are going to take it to the national events that they will be presiding. So I think it was a, a slow, perhaps rolling um, snowball 
But uh, I think it started in 2010 for sure. Um, and then I don't know exactly when, but a few years after that, I think um, once we got a uh, an international strategy, um, there were incentives for NCs to have pre-session -train, pre trainings. So they would get um, a few more points towards uh, an extra seat in their IS delegations if they had a pre-training session. Um, and actually in 2018 or 2019, um, with the governing body, we realized that that should no longer be a criteria in the IS allocation of, of spots for ISs because everyone, almost every session has a pre-session training. So um, the, the, the carrot worked <laughs> or the incentive worked, uh, worked there. Nice. And the, the other day I was having a chat with Joe. Um, and when I was putting you in context, I, I mentioned DYP Academy. And I was expecting a penny to drop. And he looked at me, he's like, what is that? But like, you know, EYB Academy, you haven't heard. But what is this stuff? So I'd say for anyone who kind of started EYP post, let's say, 2014, 2015, probably don't know what EYP Academy is, but they feel the impact of it. So could you take us through a little bit, like, what this is? In this context, I have to. I, I'd like to give just a few time uh, timelines and, and big steps. And the first one was um, in two thousand nine, the uh, board of national committees and the governing body um, accepted or approved in whatever form decided that EYB UAP should be uh, a training based organization, um, and. Um, that was a, a part of a, um, a bigger movement, let's say. Um, and uh, once that decision was done, the first D4ET was organized, as I said, in 2010. Um, and the um, concept behind it and the first steps, um, I think uh, a lot uh, of the credit goes to um, a group of dedicated UI peers, uh, Tapio Schrey, Chris Tripp, uh, Jonas Dreger. Um, I think they also came up with the idea of this T4ET. Um, and what they wanted to do was they wanted to make sure that this first event is not uh, a once uh, in a decade kind of thing. And they wanted to uh, use the enthusiasm and the energy that um, um, built up during the T4ET to ensure that there is a group that makes sure there's also a T4ET next year um, and deals with a lot of other things. Um, so I think the name of it, the structure, everything uh, was come up, uh, was, was, yeah, we came up with it during T4ET. Um, and it was, now a lot of people might, um, um, I understand it as a council or a working group, but it was really a group of uh, UI peers uh, without any relation to any national or international form of governance who were passionate about trainings and wanted to, um, um, do more about uh, uh, trainers, trainings, um, materials, tools, um, all of this. And um, I think what's interesting, I'm sure other people will have different uh, interesting perspectives on this, but um, I think a lot of people who were, or some people who were experienced UI peers at that time felt that um, they were being told that just because they were good enough chairs or great chairs, 
they wouldn't be great trainers um, because they would need to do a training course for it. They would need to do a training for trainers before being a great chairs trainers, which is ridiculous because they're already great chairs. Um, and I think that led to a bit of uh, pushback. Um, the fact, obviously, uh, for a training, you know, you couldn't have 100 people. Um, so the fact that it was, I don't remember, 30 people, let's say, it, it gave the impression that it was a closed elitist group, um, even though I don't think we intended it that way. It, it was not a conscious decision in any way. Um, and also, now that I remember, in the in one of the first years, there was also a criteria for IS presidents or vice presidents was to be on a list of trainers on which you would get, if you had a certain uh, number of trainings um, you had done, including the training for trainers. So I think all of that, you know, maybe in retrospective, there would have been uh, easier ways to get uh, buy-in from the community. Um, so, and I think part of that, together with the fact that I think those currently in the governing body, they saw there's this group of people that are doing things and we don't have a say in it. We should get it under our umbrella. Um, led to the creation of councils. So actually UIP Academy is what led to UIP having councils. Um, and they transformed it into the uh, training and academic development council. It had different names throughout the years. Um, and at that point, they thought, OK, what other working groups would we like to have um, and, and so forth? And in a way, I think I was on the governing body when we decided to um, abolish councils uh, because uh, there has been years and different GPs trying to make them work and it didn't work. So. I'm obviously not fully objective in this, but my impression is that the UIP Academy was something that worked. And the moment you put it in a bigger bureaucracy, <laughs> it stopped working um, as efficiently. Perhaps a, a, a longer answer than you wanted <laughs> to what was UIP Academy. But <laughs> that, that's helped me understand it a lot more because when I, when I think of the UIP Academy, I think of <laughs> like the uh, committee work uh, booklet that I used as my as my one text to understand what to do as a chairperson for so many years. Well, I, th I think it's called um, EYP Energizers, but it's actually a committee work booklet. Um, it's that... two different booklets. So we oh, did... Uh, um, um, the first booklet we got out as UIP Academy was UIP Energizers with energizers and then i don't remember how long after um um joanna and uh, jonas dreger uh, authored a committee work uh, guide um and uh, later on um chris strip edited a feedback uh, manual so those were the three main things and actually for example when uh, we updated the committee work um booklet after um, Joanna presided Tampere IS, so she wanted to use the, the experience to update it. And we wanted to leave in the introduction that initially it was a product of the UIP Academy, place UIP Academy in history, you know, and how it, how it worked. And we were told, no, 
because UIP Academy doesn't exist, so why why should it be there? Um, so I think it, it, it was small things like that that, that still persisted in this um, throughout the years that made it more difficult to, to continue sharing knowledge about the UIP Academy. <laughs> Yeah, I can. And I guess that's why people who've joined, let's say, in the past five, six years would not have heard of UIP Academy, uh, but they reap the benefits. Yes. And in their defense, to, to add a bit of a disclaimer, I, I don't think that those who wanted to make this decision in 2017, uh, I think they were they mostly thought there are so many different groups in UIP. Let's make it clear and simple for people. So I don't think there was any ill intent. So what what I've heard so far is uh, you were the UIP academies was in charge of the first T4ETs and then some guides. Was there other content that uh, the academy was producing beyond those? Um, so the um, UIP academy was in charge of the second T4ET onwards. The first T4ET was uh, an NC organized an event. It was UIP Finland who hosted, who uh, got a, a grant, I think uh, the current Youth in Action, former Erasmus grant. Um, and um, then the UIP Academy, I think there were three areas of work. One was managing this list of trainers, and which still exists, by the way. Um, um, I don't know the extent to which it's used but um it's the idea that um we wanted to have um, a, a list of people who want to train and who have experience in training so that for example a national committee when they want to do a training they can just look it up um and check it there uh, we wanted to offer opportunities to ui peers to uh, get training experience and then to experience trainers also more advanced experiences and we wanted to create materials. So it was the list of trainers, trainers, and materials. I think there were a lot of small things that were done, but I don't remember all of them throughout time. But probably the most significant uh, or important in my mind was that um, you know, T4Ds became a, a recognized event um, and an annual uh, one for most of the time. Um, and I really think... Um, people understand or got an understanding that training is important. And indeed, just because you're a great chair or you're a great editor, uh, it doesn't mean you're great at training others to do it. And it's not that you can never be, it's just that, you know, not all teachers are great teachers uh, just because they're experts in their field. Um, Definitely. And on that topic, so you mentioned there about chairs teams and about media teams. And I know, Joe, you, you feel quite strongly about other teams within training. Uh, Joe, talk to us a bit about like what, what you've been looking into in different sessions or with different people around trainings outside of just chairs and media. If I'm in the leadership of a session, I quite often um, fo focus on also including some knowledge sharing to the organizing team, uh, because, you know, if... If, if you have the knowledge of how to, for example, manage your energy levels at a UAP session, and there's a lot of organizers that are maybe haven't been an official before, then that's a lot of uh, in, perhaps very useful information that can make help make the session better. But my main, main focus point with that has been uh, 
trainings for the jury. I when I was when I was a jury member, I think I only did it once before becoming a head of jury myself. Um, we had a lot of team building and a little bit of training, but it was all, always a lot based on it. During was always a lot of based on what you've done as a chairperson and what you understand about delegates through that. But then bringing in this like, okay, well, still, we still have a CGO day. Like, sure, we can play exploding kittens for five hours with each other, but you know, maybe there's something else we could be doing that would be more beneficial to the session as a whole. So I did a lot of things re revolving around like, how can the jury team support other teams and delegates, and like, what what is our role? Like, having more in-depth conversations within the team with that. I think. Um... UAP is only recently gotten better at identifying and making it explicit for everyone that takes part what skills one gets by attending UAP in different roles. So I think for a long time it was, well, it's great. You are going to work on becoming an active citizen and debate skills and language skills. And that was kind of it. Um, and I think in recent years, the, the international office has, has made a lot of progress in identifying um, um, all more of the skills that one gets to use, practice and develop. And with that means that there is a, a, a myriad of trainings we could have. And I think, you know, it's not just public speaking. And if you, of course, it's great that you can do public speaking trainings for delegates at sessions. But you could also do leadership trainings for anyone in uh, the officials team. I think there's a lot of potential. Um, and I think it's, uh, it just takes a, a, a framework in which individuals who think this is an important topic, I'd like to do a training about it, they could, they could do it. Um, in one of the um, uh, measures catalog for the international strategy, I remember we added something, uh, a dream was that we would have a grant for any group of UAPers or UAPers who wanted to do a training event or something that would build a community, help multiply what you get in UAP, they could apply and run it. Um, obviously on a smaller scale, yet still very impactful, is that individuals who have these thoughts, like, like you explained, Joel, next time you go to a session, you can suggest it and maybe um, make it happen. Um, and on the jury, I remembered um, we actually did a jury guide. The first jury guide um, was done. Uh, Lars Christian Selbeck authored it uh, with the training council. Um, and it was also the first time that uh, we, we had in UAP, uh, we collected the very different practices in UAP about um, jury. Uh, I was head organizing a Swedish regional in uh, Gothenburg and I remember the national committee handed me a jury guide and I just looked at it like I don't agree with any of this. So there's a brilliant part of EYP when, the, when it comes to this kind of content and we shouldn't take everything for face value because there's as many UAPers there is, there's as many opinions about how to be, what kind of delegate you should be or how you should chair. And it's very valuable to 
also encourage these trainings to take place and this kind of new information to be expressed to the network so that we don't limit ourselves to having one or two chairs guides done by one NC and another NC and then everyone just thinks that that's okay that's that's the extent of uh, chairing an EYP. Of course I think knowledge management is a um, a bigger question than the long time struggle of UAP. I think um, practices like this the podcast you're doing is is great for it. Um, We actually have uh, since recently I don't know how it's been going I haven't been following um, international governance recently but uh, we started working in my year and I think uh, Dennis uh, from Greece um, uh, finalized the knowledge strategy and part of it was working on um, uh, or making sure that we have a platform, whatever form that would take, where we would not just have guides as a PDF document, but it would be a place for members to come together and comment and add on it. Because um, I think while some things stay the same in UIP, there's a lot that changes by people making small tweaks, adapting, improving, learning. Um, and we actually did have this, I think it was, it might have been the UIP Academy, I don't want to lie, I don't remember. Uh, there was a a form of Wikipedia for UAP, I don't remember the name of it. Um, uh, it was only for team building and people could say, uh, I tried this other variation, they could upload a video of how it worked, uh, you could hear the songs. Um, so I do think we would benefit from something more interactive where, as you say, Joel, it would also help... Uh, constantly developing methods uh, rather than having static ones. Uh, I remember a good rogue element of that. I think it was uh, Jelle de Reuter, a Dutch EYPer, that he was trying, in some session he was chairing and he was trying some combination of, if I remember correctly, combining committee work and team building into these kind of unified activities. And he was making very excessive documentation about what he did, how it worked, what could be further improved and just dump that on some Facebook page for people to see. And uh, it, it was, it's a really interesting idea to have this in a more unified way. And it's a um, shame that it hasn't yet caught on. Maybe in the future members platform that is currently under development, that could yes. be a thing at some point. I'm hoping it is a part of it. Well, one thing that was coming to my mind um, a lot when we were discussing about what other trainings could be out there beyond um, like the chairs training and the media team training, Joe talked a bit about the jury training. And as you said, in UIP, we start to learn so many more skills. And as we learn these, we can then start to teach them more and more. And it's something that I think both Joe and I recognize is that even within leadership, you you go into a session, you preside your first session. No one knows how to preside the session. You have to just make it up as you go. There is no kind of training to help you on that. And then the VPs or the, yeah, either the VPs, the editorial assistants or anyone else on that level who are then need to start to train the team, they are not expected to have any training on training beforehand either because I guess until now, training for for EYP trainers is very much, like you said before, a smaller group of people each year who tend to attend this, where we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who go into these roles without kind of knowing that. So it'll be interesting to see, let's say in the next few years or so, how we can start to expand these trainings to actually help teach way more skills than the ones that we currently do. Um... 
I have, I think, two thoughts I want to uh, follow up on. Um, the first one is definitely one of the areas uh, that we don't have a lot of training is IS presidents or presiding in general, sorry. Um, I think it's almost also a bit cruel because you can only preside in IS once. And no matter, you know, I've presided so many sessions and I VP'd in an IS twice. And still there were things I didn't realize before actually presiding in IS. And you only get to do it once. So it's a bit cruel that you don't get someone to tell you how you're supposed to do it. Um, then we actually have two people who, at least two people who, uh, Chris Tripp and uh, Hadi Segond, who presided uh, international forums after presiding their IS. So they got a, a redo. Um, I think there was a first training for presidents in Finland one or two years ago. Um, I haven't seen any uh, output from it, uh, but maybe it's still in the making. I don't know. Um, I also had long plans to, um, for like 10 years, to write a president's guide. Um, and it, you know. Um, but, anyways, uh, definitely more to do there. Um, and now with T40Ts, I think. The hope was, or in my mind, in the early years, um, we thought that to truly reach more people or as many, at least satisfy the demand, um, we could have two T4ETs per year and maybe at one point have regional T4ETs. Um, we actually even got to have two, we selected and planned, so the, the um, um, training council was responsible for T4ETs and gradually with the office and um, and so forth. Um, and we got to have two T4Ts. I think in 2015, maybe we were supposed to have two. Uh, we had never had as many applications and it was so awesome. And we even did it that for one T4T and C's could nominate and for the other one it was individuals who could apply. Um, and unfortunately there was um, a, a bottleneck uh, not on the side of the training council, I'd like to say, um, which meant that uh, some some things didn't go out when they should have, and uh, it was um, uh, a bit too late for the second one to take place. Um, it was UIP Greece. They were understandably uh, very frustrated, but um, uh, we were close to <laughs> having uh, two T4Ts. Um, and then I think because... Um, well-intentioned um, at one point I think there were one too many groups or too many people who were uh, interested in ensuring T4ETs take place and that they satisfy certain requirements so it was the training council the office the governing body then you'd have the organizing team and the NC and it's easy for things to um, um, go wrong um, and especially when not a lot of, um, maybe not all of them were, um, you know, knew what a training was about or why the, it was important to do it in a certain way or things like that. Um, I think things slowed down for a bit. Um, um, and um, I think in, at one point there was also the question, should we keep doing training uh, T4ETs? Um, and there was a task force in two thousand. 17 maybe, 16, that 
evaluated T4ETs, uh, so from 2010 to 2016. And they looked at the interviewed participants, the trainers, NCs. They had a survey for um, all the NCs to see how it was perceived. Um, and, and, and I looked up this report because I think it's really cool. Um, and my favorite number is that 47 T4 tiers had delivered 243 training courses. So, of course, it's... Uh, six years or maybe five, but it's a lot, right? So in terms of the multiplying the effect, <laughs> 41 out of 53 T4 tiers wanted to train more often. So they wanted to go even further. Of course that you had 53, I think the numbers are a bit higher. We, there were probably just 53 respondents, but we definitely want to have a higher number of people attending T4ET getting to do T4ET. Um, and I think for that, it has to become regional because then um, already, if you want to have a quality, in-depth, personalized, tailored training, I don't think it should go higher than 25, 30 people. Um, I think making it regional would mean that um, you might also see more... Um, um, cooperation, ideas for people to work together, you know, my NC is doing something, a training, do you want to come with me, you're close by, costs might be easier. And I think it's about making it more um, accessible. Um, so unless either the organizers or UAP manage to give a travel refund, no participation fee, you know, there shouldn't be a barrier um, to it. Um, and the next important thing, I think, afterwards is that um, in the same survey, it was something like uh, 19 out of 21 NCs said they struggled to find trainers for their events. Um, and 70% um, of respondents struggled to find opportunities as trainers. They wanted to train, but they couldn't find it. You know, so clearly it's a systemic issue. Um, I think the list of trainers, I'm not sure if it got better in the meantime, um, but it's also about making it more accessible for someone who wants to train. There is a training event, but they shouldn't have to pay 300 euros uh, of their pocket money to, to do it. Yeah, I think that goes beautifully back to what you were talking about earlier, about what kind of training events do we have because at this point when the ET4ETs have become so rare uh, I don't know how many there probably has been like two or three in the past three or four years at this point and talking uh, it's at that point it's kind of when you attend FT4ET you're like okay well I want to do some really interesting trainings like push this further and the only training opportunities even though even if there are some they're trainings for members that have never been officials and you don't have this kind of training events where you could really push yourself as a trainer like sure you can try to maximize the amount that the trainees get out of it but they can only get so much out of it if no none of the trainees have ever been in leadership positions and there's only so much information you can you know circ circulate and create within that group that doesn't have the experience to begin with 
an initial dream, and I remember Tapio, um, he, he's one of my dearest friends and uh, was for a long time uh, my mentor with trading. Um, I think he had in mind um, T4ET for experienced traders. I think he even had a cool name, I don't remember it. I even remember a presentation on how it would look like, and it was for you know a more advanced level of training because the idea was, okay, you did T4T, you trained a lot. Is there anything else? Um, hopefully, it it's something that happens um, in UAP at one point. Then, in terms of um, trainings for, I, I I think we have trainings for very. Uh, varied roles with levels of experiences. I think, for example, in UMP France, um, I was responsible for trainings for a few years and we'd have these uh, members weekends and it had the different streams, organizing, chairing, uh, media team. Um, and within each, at, I think at times we had different groups depending on experience level. I also did uh, in a members weekend in the Netherlands, there was chairing 101 and it even went to boards trading. So um, I'm sure there's probably more around chairing, um, but uh, we also had trainings for um, international sessions, um, international sessions and forums uh, for the organizers. So. Um, but of course, there's so much more that could be done. And I think there's a lot of people that would be interested. Um, but I think it's quite difficult, you know. So let's say you have this idea you'd like to do a training on X. Not only would you have to come up with a concept, calls, everything, you'd have to get the money for it, right? And I don't think it's reasonable to expect, I don't know, 16, 18-year-old, 20-year-old, whatever age someone would want to uh, do a training on something to do all of it, right? We need some institutional support um, for it. So then on, on this level, so something that's been, that I've been really interested in this year specifically because of COVID is e-learning. So w- within my, within my job, I'm a, I'm a senior trainer in a company and what I've now moved a lot more into is um, e-learning content development and really trying to understand through either e-learning or blended learning so somebody self-paced by themselves online learning by themselves or um, as an instructor I walk them through part of the content and then they use e-learning for the rest of the content something like this and how we can build that in the best way and I I kind of feel like there is an opportunity to do, do that in UIP I worked a bit on it last year but then I started to realize the platform I was using wasn't as good and now within the company that I'm in we're using an amazing platform I'm learning better e-authoring tools so all of this kind of stuff Um, what do you see as maybe e-learning as a the ability to bridge that gap where you can build organize and train so many people at such a low budget I'm definitely up for it (laughs) I think um uh, there isn't just one form uh, of knowledge management or delivery that we should be doing in UAP. Um, I think, uh, you know, the more the better. Um, I do think there's a gap. I think it can be filled. I think we've been missing um, mostly when people realize how they could do this on a professional level. They're no longer active in UAP. I think UAP would be lucky if you would take this forward. Um, I remember Chris Tripp actually had this idea several years ago within the training council we were talking about something in the lines of a UAP university um, and 
we stopped at questions like, okay, but do we make it password protected? Would we have to pay people? Um, would people expect to be paid? Um, how does, and I think we just stopped at these procedural questions, but I think a lot of them would just get an answer if you get going and push through. Um, and I also think the platform is a big thing. Um, you know, I don't think neither Chris nor I, definitely not at that point, had any idea how it would work besides, I don't know, making YouTube videos. <laughs> um, but I think there was also, I don't know if perhaps too much caution, but I think there was, there are also some, some trainers who thought, okay, but how do we ensure quality control? Especially when it's about some group dynamics or, you know, we, we do have young people with quite a lot of power over other young people. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong. How do we make sure that in something that we advertise as um, knowledge, the right way to do it, how do we make sure that those methods and those practices are correct, safe, you know, in this line. And I, I think that's also what might have stopped. Uh, though, of course, now I can imagine that, you know, you just have different videos and people can give ratings or comments and it, it's, it, it could also be a more self-moderating. You don't need them. It's also what happened actually with guides. There were so many more guides um, also on an older platform. And then one year someone said we need to do quality control in all of them. And out of, I don't know, 40 guides, there were like five left on the members platform. Um, and you could also not access all the others, which I think is a pity because um, sure, you know, put in the focus, the ones you know are okay, but maybe the other ones could also be around because it, it's still history, it's still inspiration. And I think also a lot of learning in UIP is by testing things, seeing Maybe they don't work out um, and you improve on them. And I wanted, sorry, I had one more small thing on, on something that Joel said. I actually looked and I think, um, I don't know if there was an online T4AT that took place last year or this year. So I don't remember what COVID did, but since 2010 to 2019, there were only two years in which T4AT didn't happen. Uh, one of them was um, um, very close to the event. The head organizer had some family problems and it was too late to find another head organizer. And then in 2017, which is what I mentioned, that the GB was thinking, maybe we just don't do T4Ts anymore. And that's also when this evaluation took place. Um, it was meant to take place last year in Turkey. We had selected VNC. They had great plans uh, with a great head organizer. I don't know if it took place online or not. I but. I don't believe I can't remember. Uh, I know that in in UIP France we had um so UIP France had their T four E T. I so, thought that was um, wonderful uh, to see a national T four E T. But once again, there there was a bit of bureaucracy because technically speaking, according to the UIP rules and stuff, that UIP France weren't allowed to invite international uh, people internationally for the, for that T four E T unless the GB gave approval of the. T4ET concept, etc., and so then we had to um, then based on I don't know spheres of influence or something like this, where it's the GB, where it would normally be the training council who would have the mandate to say any any kind of T4ET in which 
is outside of one country. So if it's one country hosting, but inviting participants from other countries, then the content and stuff like that has to be approved by the training council. So even with that one, we had to say, oh, hold on a second, we need to get GB approval in order just to run this one because we had people from multiple countries. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the training council is no longer in place. So there... <laughs> Um, which doesn't mean, you know, it, it means there is a room for a group of individuals who might be passionate about it to take it on. I don't want to comment on a GP decision I haven't seen and I don't know about. Um, without more information, I would say, you know, the more T4ETs we have, the better. I think it's great if UAP France had people for, from other NCs. Um, and I think it'd be great if... if Obviously, there's a lot happening and I, I can also see how um, T4Ts are not the immediate priority um, on an international level, especially now. Um, I think it'd be very useful if, if um, there were uh, funds available. You know, if the office would say, we're going to help with a grant and we want to see four regional T4Ts next year. And then, you know, they don't even have to uh, get involved in organizing. They can select some experienced T4Ts to act as mentors, supporters for the organizing team and the trainers team. Um, I think that would be great. Um, I know the office is doing a great job. I hope it doesn't come across. It's definitely not intended as, as criticism on their part. I also know that when we... Um, put out the call even for T4T 2020, um, a lot of NCs were like, what is T4AT? Um, because with the turnover, um, it, it's not something that a lot of people know about. So um, um, hopefully there's more information on the new platform. <laughs> um, also the trainers of T4AT 2016 um, uh, wrote a guide on organizing T4ATs. Um, the main author was Alex Proctor. He did most of the work on it. Um, and it's really useful because it helps, you know, okay, where do I start? What, did it, what does it imply if I want to have a T40? Um, and it's actually a lot less work than uh, for a session. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking about it. Um, and it's been great to to think back and and remember the good times and i um yeah i feel i'd like to thank again tapio every now and then after a few trainings i'd message him say i now understand what you were saying <laughs> a few years ago um i i hope um, more uipers get to have uh, mentors uh, like tapio was for me and um, some of the people i enjoy training with most are also uh, besides tapio jonas and, and chris and i'm very thankful to still have them as as my friends